you have a copy of God's word, turn with me to Psalm 121. This is the second of the Psalms of Ascent. There will be a little header probably in your copy of God's word that says Song of Ascents. And uh, <clears throat> during Advent, we're not going to look at all the songs of ascents, but we're going to look at these uh, several prayers that as I began to learn <clears throat> what Advent is, this time of repentance and renewal in our relationship with Jesus, as we hop on a uh, seven-ish week road to the cross, um, and we make our way towards Good Friday to celebrate the crucifixion, Saturday where we celebrate the descent of Christ into the place of the dead, and Sunday when we celebrate that Christ has been resurrected. And as we move towards that, this is a time where the church celebrates in a way that kind of seems upside down, in a way that looks maybe more like mourning, maybe look, looks more like repenting. It looks more like a time of renewal and fasting as we try to lean deeper into who Jesus is. And so through prayer and preparation and time in the word, I've just put together seven prayers. And our first one that we're gonna pray this week is keep us. Keep us from Psalm 121. So if you're there, I'm gonna read it. Psalm 121 says this, I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. God, this is your word and we are thankful. Speak deeply to our hearts this morning because your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. <clears throat> well, between 1915 and 1970, there was close to, uh, there was a migration within the borders of our nation of close to six million people. Not immigration, but migration. Because between the years 1915 and 1917, six million black Americans moved from the south to anywhere else in our country. Some traveled west, making their way to California, Los Angeles, San Diego. Some traveled to the Midwest, to Chicago, or some north to New York. This journey was an exodus of freedom for them. This journey, though, wasn't easy, and it certainly wasn't safe. They had heard the stories of what they could only describe as the promised land, a land outside of Jim Crow laws and racism that made it dangerous for them to walk down the wrong side of the street or make eye contact with the wrong kind of person. They had heard stories from family members who had gotten out before them, and they made it their life's mission to leave with them and their family and anyone else they could leave with to go. And thus ensued what became the Great Migration. Six million people leaving the South, moving to other parts of the country. And Isabel Wilkerson, in her book, The Warmth of Other Sons, tells this story. She tells it through the lens of three or four individuals from the time they were kids growing up, the way they journeyed and traveled uh, from where they lived in the South to these places in the Midwest, in the North, and out West, one of the major difficulties Isabel Wilkerson talks about in her book is the difficulties of the journey 
to find out where it was safe to stop, where it was safe to eat or to get gas or to stay overnight in a hotel. As folks would journey out west, El Paso seemed to be, uh, in Texas, kind of a, a turning point. The signs that would mark water fountains and restaurants and train cars as colored began to disappear. But as travelers journeyed past El Paso, what they found was that the spirit of racism was often still there. So there would be kind of this gray area. Is it safe to stop at this hotel or is it not? As they moved to the Midwest, the Ohio River seemed to be uh, an informal boundary. And north, it seemed to be about Washington, D.C. But even past these markers did not guarantee any safety and did not promise any more allowances than it was in the south. It just meant that in those areas, there was a greater chance that someone, might offer them some sort of rest, some sort of food, some sort of place to stay overnight as they drove thousands of miles across the country. So what began to be developed as the Great Migration went on was a guidebook, a little green guidebook, where people who had made the trip would submit information, and they actually printed out these green books to give to travelers to help plan their journey. Because these black Americans were on their way to a promised land that flowed with freedom and opportunities they were fleeing the ways of satan they were fleeing the ways of satan that filled this land where we are today the land where my ancestors made life hell on earth for them see they knew where they were headed but they also knew that on the way lied many dangers that caused them to ask much like the psalmist in our text today where does my help come from? And they asked, will God keep us on this journey? Will God keep us on this journey? Psalm 121 is talking about the way of the pilgrim, the way of the traveler, the way of the sojourner, the way of someone who starts off on a long journey and needs help as they travel. Journeys weren't always what they are now. A few hours or double-digit hours at worst. Journeys would be days, weeks, months even. These songs of ascent would be sung by Jews who were coming to Jerusalem probably for a worship festival, maybe even sung by those that Nehemiah led out of exile back to the promised land in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. And see, traveling to Jerusalem was always referred to as we're going up to the mountain of God. We're going up, we're going up. And it's because in some ways, literally traveling to Jerusalem meant going up because it was at a higher elevation built on a little bit of a mountain. So you would have to literally go up. But Eugene Peterson tells us in his book, Long Obedience in the Same Direction, every chapter is on a different one of these songs of ascent. He tells us that the ascent was not only literal, it was also a metaphor. The trip to Jerusalem acted out a life that was lived upward to God. It was an existence that advanced from one level to another in developing maturity. What Paul described as the goal. Here, God is beckoning us onward to Jesus. So we see also the biblical context of journey. The idea of God's people being on a journey fills the pages of Scripture. From the moment Adam and Eve are exiled out of the Garden of Eden in Genesis 3, humanity has been trying to find a way back home. We have been restless in the words of Augustine. Abraham was called out of the land where he was born and raised and where his family was, and he was called to go on a journey with God to a land that he had not seen yet. 
Moses led the Israelites on a deliverance journey to take them out of Egypt, but that deliverance journey became a discipleship journey because God also needed to take Egypt out of them. Nehemiah led the exiles on a journey back to the promised land from exile, and then Thomas asked Jesus where he was going because Jesus kept talking about not being here anymore, and Thomas said, where are you going? Jesus replied with John 14, verse 6. Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Hebrews 11 is the hall of faith, telling the stories of those in Scripture who lived by faith in God, celebrating their faith, celebrating their devotion to the Lord. And right kind of in the middle, you get this aside, and verses 13 to 16 say this. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they'd been thinking of that land from which they'd gone out, they would have had the opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country. That is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. And then Hebrews 11 ends a number of verses later, and Hebrews 12 says this. Therefore, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, <clears throat> let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. See, the Christian life is a journey to the heavenly city. It is a long obedience in the same direction, as Eugene Peterson described it. The Christian life is a journey from exile home to God's presence. That is what the Christian life is. It is a journey. You don't arrive the moment you become a follower of Jesus. Becoming a follower of Jesus is the first step onto a lifetime of a journey with him. Home to experience the fullness of God's presence. But as this psalm reminds us, there's dangers on the journey. This psalm starts by looking to the hills and asking for help. Now, why is he looking to the hills? Commentators agree there's probably two reasons, and he doesn't specify which one is happening here. He says, I lift my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? Well, in one sense, he might be looking to the hills because they hold threats to his safe passage. And this pilgrim is walking and he looks up to the hills and he knows there's dangers on this journey. And he's looking and he's reminded of his need saying, where's my help gonna come from? This is a dangerous journey. But the other thing is he might be looking to the hills because they find in the hills promises of safe passage. You see, in the hills is where the locals would have kept their idols. They would have made sacrifices and worshiped. So as they're journeying through these lands, of people who didn't worship the God of the Bible, they would have had opportunity to turn and try to make some appeasement to the local gods to try to find safe passage. So he's looking to the hills for one of these two reasons. Because he's either, he's either thinking of a threat to his safe passage or a false promise to his safe passage. We're gonna look at both of those this morning. There are threats to our safe passage as we're on a journey home to the presence of God. First, on, on this journey that the psalmist is talking about in 121, there are some real obvious dangers. We just watched a documentary in our house uh, not too long, a couple weeks ago, about these guys, these photographers who hiked the entire Grand Canyon uh, next to the river. And it's unbelievable, okay? Uh, I, I love the Grand Canyon. I'm not a big uh, nature guy, 
but, but you can't really deny how beautiful the Grand Canyon is. But when I go, like I'm good to look at the edge from like here to the door. You understand? The Bible calls it wisdom. I stand back and I look and I admire. We went before we had kids with my sister and brother-in-law. We woke up super early and it was in June. We were not prepared for how cold it was gonna be on a June morning in Arizona. And so we, uh, we stole, God forgive us, all the comforters from our hotel and we go and sit and watch the sunrise over the green. It was amazing. Carrie does not like seeing from back here. She wants to go right up and like look look straight down <laughs> and she sees the handrail and she's like that's a suggestion we can go through this is a more gate let's go through let's look down i don't know if you ever looked down in the grand canyon way down it goes way down and what we learned in this documentary is when they're walking next to this river there's like nowhere to walk in a lot of places it'd be river and it's cliffs right they're walking through here and and they faced, they, they got injured, they would hurt their ankles, and they, what happened was in this documentary, they, the first leg of their trip they thought would be way easier than it was, and it took them way longer, they didn't have enough food or water, they had way too much, uh, it was ironic, because they, in some ways they didn't bring enough, but in other ways they had too much weight in their packs, and they needed food, they were getting hurt, the sun was burning up their skin, and they were hot, and uh, there's all sorts of, of, of cacti around. I mean, there's all sorts of obvious dangers when you go on a journey like that, right? All sorts of obvious dangers. And the psalmist thinks of these dangers, right? Because he says, he, who will, he will not let your foot be moved. The most immediate dangers on a journey are just getting hurt. You might trip. You might stumble to a severe injury or even death. He also mentions the sun and the night. The day brings its dangers with the sun and the heat. Will I stay hydrated? Will I stay cool? Will I be sunburned or even sun poisoned? The nights bring the dangers of the unknown. Seeking rest when I may need to stay alert to save my life. So naturally, the pilgrim would call out for help. There are dangers that threaten my safe passage. God, keep me safe. Help me not to get hurt. Help me not to be dehydrated. Help me during the day when the sun is bearing down on me to be the shade at my right hand. Help me at night when enemies lurk in the shadows and I don't know what's coming for me to protect my life. But you see, it's not just the physical dangers of the safe passage. If we believe that this passage that Psalm 121 is talking about is also the Christian life, in some, what are threats to our safe passage? Now, you may come from some kind of tradition or maybe you've heard this teaching that there shouldn't be any threats to your safe passage in the Christian life. You may have heard some teach that if you had real faith, you'd be protected more than you could ever imagine. That if you had real faith, you'd be flourishing with fame and riches. Now I'm here to tell you this morning that nothing could be further from the truth. Nothing could be further from the truth. The Bible never says anything like that. The Bible is very realistic about this life and all its pain and all its dangers. In fact, the book of Job exists for that very reason. To show you that you might suffer and it's not because of your sin. It's not because it's some tit for tat where God is giving you something that you deserve. There are just plain difficult things in this life we live. Life will be difficult and the Bible holds nothing back in assuring you of that. In fact, right now, you may be facing something that you think will crush you. You might be facing something and you think this is the end. This is 
the end. It, it might be abuse from someone you trusted. It might be a sickness that you never imagined would come. It could be the betrayal of a loved one or a friend. The death of a family member. The loss of a job. And whatever it is you're facing, you might be thinking, this is it. Like, this is the one that will do me in. And I will never make it past this. I, I'm not going to make it. Because on your journey from exile home to the presence of God, there are threats to your safe passage. Not just threat of, of your foot slipping, but threats of suffering and burdens that are too much for you to carry. But if we take this idea that he's looking to the hills a little differently, we're not just looking at threats to safe passage, we're looking at promises of safe passage. Right? Because on this journey, he's looking to the hills, and he, maybe he's not looking and he's seeing threats. Maybe, maybe he's seeing the dangers of the journey that's forcing him to recognize the need that he has. So while he's traveling to God's presence to worship him, the reality is they need help now. So they see the idols in the hills. The locals promise their effectiveness. There's need. There's opportunity. Seems like a decent fit. We face something hard. We want something to get us out, to ease the pain, to help us cope. So we turn to something that gives us a false promise of deliverance, a false promise of safety. The Old Testament word that they would use would be idol, and I would contend that it's still a helpful word for us. Though we might not be cutting down trees and carving images in them, we still place something in the presence of God and we trust in it, we hope in it, we depend on it as if it were God. Listen to David Pallison, maybe the grandfather of talking about the idolatry of the heart, from an article in 1995. He says that idols counterfeit aspects of God's identity and character. They that's what idols do. They counterfeit aspects of God's identity and character. Judge, savior, source of blessing, sin bearer, object of trust, author of a will which must be obeyed, and so forth. The traveler in Psalm 121, and us, we are tempted to counterfeit God's perfect protection and guidance with something a bit more expedient. We are tempted to counterfeit God's perfect protection for something that is a little bit more expedient. And the thing about this life is that when it gets hard and we cry out for help, you'll have options. Rest assured of that. You will always have options. When you need help, there will be options for help. The world is not short on helps. Our idols are going to match the things that we think are our greatest needs. And we'll try to define those needs for ourselves. We'll try to diagnose them, and then we'll find something that we can prescribe ourselves. So how can I know? How can I know what I'm tempted to worship as an idol? How, how can I know these things that I'm, I'm trying to counterfeit aspects of God and these other aspects of my life? How can I understand what the idols are in my life? Well, we've often talked about the curated life. It's this idea that we want to edit our life to hide what's unacceptable and present what will be acceptable to others. And really, this is a sort of idol. We might think that we need the approval and affection of others, and we're only going to get it if we act a certain way, if we present a certain identity. 
We might have the idol of being a certain kind of person, and so we'll do whatever it takes to curate our identity to become that. I want to be known as, and we will curate our identity to be known as that. Why? Because underneath that, there's an idol of identity that we think, if I am only this kind of person, then my life will be put together. Then I will find satisfaction. Then I will find happiness. Then I will have peace. Then I will have relationships and be lovable for people that have never loved me before. Then I will have arrived and have rest in my heart. We think that we'll never be truly happy without this. So we do whatever it takes to get it. A lot of our idols revolve around happiness and satisfaction. Our lives get aimed at things that we think will bring us satisfaction, happiness, or in the case of this psalm, safe passage through life. How would you finish this sentence? My life would be complete if. My life would be complete if I only had, or my life would be complete if I only could. What is the thing you're waiting on to complete your life? Can I tell you something? That is the thing that you are worshiping as God. Anything that you put the weight on to complete your life is the thing you are trusting to be God to you. It doesn't have to be animate. It could be an inanimate object. It could be anything. We could idolize money, riches, fame and notoriety, sex and pleasure, power and authority. We can take, humans are creative because we're made in the image of God. We're so creative that we can take anything in this world and make it an ultimate thing. And the reality is that when we turn to something other than God to get us through life, we are saying that we don't believe God can do that. We're saying we don't believe God can get us through. But this psalm tells us a better story. That's when we move on to finding help. And we find that God is our keeper on this journey. The promises of this psalm are wonderful. We see that God's keeping is forever. He guards us day and night. He guards us when we go out and when we come in. He guards us now and forevermore. It says no evil will touch us. God never sleeps. And listen, if you want to know how this works, find a Christian who's been through hell on earth and they will certainly tell you a story of God who carried them through, of God who guarded and protected them like the psalm describes keeping them like this, maintaining them, preserving them, protecting them. Derek Kidner, who wrote a commentary on the psalm, says, in light of all the other scriptures, this ending here that talks about being kept from all evil, it it does not imply a cushioned life, but a well-armed one. And this phrase, going out and coming in, this was a Hebrew way of expressing totality, to talk about two opposites, and therefore to imply everything else in between them. It's not to say only going out and coming in. It's to say everything from going out to coming in. We find that God in this psalm is your keeper, verse 5. He is your shade on your right hand. Notice the repetition of the words the Lord or Lord and you or your. Eugene Peterson again talks about this. When we face these threats or these false promises on our safe passage, He says that the only serious mistake we can make when illness comes, when anxiety threatens, when conflict disturbs our relationship with others, is to conclude a couple things. This is the only, he says, this is the only serious mistake you could make. You could conclude that God's gotten bored looking after us. 
and he shifted his attention to a more exciting Christian. Or <clears throat> God's finally become disgusted with our meandering obedience and he decided to let us fend for ourselves for a while. That hits home for me. I wonder if you put guilt like that on yourself. I know I'm going through this. <clears throat> I've just, I've asked for grace too many times. And God's finally pulled back the rug on me and said, you gotta learn. You're gonna have to go through the consequence. I mean, th th this is ridiculous. You're here again? I mean, you're, you're, you're stumbling through this obedience and I'm, I'm tired of coming to your aid every single time. You need me to, to help you do this every time. And you know what you haven't learned by this point? Eugene Peterson says that can be one of our greatest mistakes when we walk through something difficult is to assume that God's gotten disgusted with our meandering obedience and he's decided to let us fend for ourselves a while. Or maybe God's gotten too busy doing something else. Too busy doing something world-changing. Take care about little old me. <clears throat> so we read this good news of Psalm 121. We see the threats. We see the false promises. We see the suffering and the burdens of the threats. We see the idolatry of the false promises. Then we read this good news. The Lord is your keeper. And maybe, I'm trying to speak for the cynical ones here this morning. None of us. They're not here. You might be going, yeah, right. How do I know? How do I know the Lord's going to keep me? You don't know. You don't know my story. You don't know what he, what he would have to keep me from. And you don't know what I'm going through. If this is the Lord keeping me, uh-uh. I don't want to see him not keeping me. Because it sure seems like he's not keeping me right. How do I know any of this is true? You might be reading Psalm 21 and it promises that God will keep us in a way that's never stopping. Sally Lloyd-Jones says in the Jesus Storybook Bible, God's never stopping, never giving up, always and forever love. And you might be thinking, I don't know what that is. I've never experienced something like that. And if this is that kind of love, I'll take something different. How do I know this is true? Well, here's how. We're going to put Psalm 121 to the test this morning. You do an experiment, right? You run a test. Does this work or does this not work? What if we pushed Psalm 121 to the limits? What if we had someone we could look at who's been on a journey that was so difficult, so life-threatening, so challenging, that we could watch that story unfold and come to some sort of conclusion that either the Lord keeps or he doesn't? Well, good news. If you've been here before, long-time caller, first-time listener, then you'll know there is someone this is about the time at 11, oh, we're running later than I thought, 11.30. I was thinking, hoping it was 11.15. We pivot to Jesus. We pivot to the story of Jesus. He puts the psalm to the test. Jesus gets on the way with us. He actually had a really hard road. He walked a path of obscurity and rejection, opposition, suffering, and eventual death. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus even had a way out. And in the desert, think about the text Kristen read earlier, right? This, uh, this temptation from Satan to bypass the suffering to obtain the glory. Hey, false promise of safe passage is what that is. So he has the threats, the obscurity, the rejection, the opposition, the suffering, even the death. He has the false promises of safe passage in the desert and the Garden of Gethsemane where he's sitting there and he's going, God, if there's any other way but 
I will submit to this. But it all ended at the cross. See, Jesus' whole life was a road to the cross. That's the name of our series as we move through Easter. The road to the cross. Jesus' whole life was a road to the cross. He came to die. In Jerusalem, there is a road, a pathway called the Via Dolorosa that is the road that's believed to be the path Jesus walked on the way to the crucifixion as he tried to carry his cross. He has such a difficult way that he cries from the cross, Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And in all that Jesus faced, the impossibly hard way that he lived, and the impossibly difficult way he suffered and died, he never turned away from God. And what we come to find out at the end of the story is that God never turned away from him either. See, he says, why have you forsaken me? But the resurrection is proof that God never actually abandoned Jesus. God was his perfect keeper even through the grave. No evil could ultimately touch Jesus. You say, that's great. I'm not Jesus. So what does Psalm 121 look like for you and me? When you jump over to the New Testament, we see more of this language about keeping and holding and guarding. In John 6, which we've talked about John a good bit, John 6, 39 says, this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he's given me, but raise it up on the last day. Jude 24 talks about him, God, who is able to keep you from stumbling. So God is able to keep us. Jesus does not lose any of us, but how? Because when Jesus faced the worst that this world has to offer through his death on the cross, and when Jesus faced the worst consequences imaginable, the wrath of God on that cross, he was kept through it all so that he would be resurrected out of death. And now, what the Bible describes our salvation as is not you get to be friends with them. It's not, look how amazing that is. Now you go and try to do the same. The Bible says our salvation is us being united to him so that everything that's true of Jesus is now true of you. This Romans 6, 4 and 5, we were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Four, if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Our union with Christ means God can and will keep us forever. Even through the worst. Because Christ already faced the worst and he lived to tell the tale. And now Jesus keeps us through the same. His victory, hey, it's yours. His power is yours. His righteousness, his standing with God, his indestructible life, his perfect record yours and you say I don't I don't have a perfect record that logically doesn't make sense how could God count me as having a perfect record because when God looks at you he sees Jesus that is what union with Christ means it means you have been united to him by faith so now you can know in Jesus that God is able to keep you on this journey not because of your strength not because of your power, not because of the strength of your faith, 
not because of how much of the Bible you've memorized or how much you pray or how often you come here or how vibrantly you worship, not because of anything you do, not because of any spiritually curated life you're presenting every time you walk through these doors. There is nothing in you that makes God more happy to keep you. God keeps you because of Jesus, because of all that Jesus has done and earned on your behalf for you. God will preserve and guard you in Christ. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. How do you know? Because he kept Christ's life. And you say, but, but you don't know how bad this is for me. Hey, Jesus stepped onto this earth with one plan, to let the worst happen to him so that you can't say that. So that you can't say, but he doesn't get, oh yeah, he does. The worst happened. An old writer said, uh, Christ has been to the bottom. It's solid. And he's come back. And he's bringing you with him. Let's pray this morning. God, we love you. We thank you for who you are and for what you've done. As we move into this time of final reflection, I want to invite you to, to pray for a couple of things. What are the threats on your journey right now? Those things of suffering that you're bearing, that are threatening, that you're thinking, this is going to crush me. What are those things? I'd like to invite you in this moment to offer that up to God. Open up your hands. Offer that to him in prayer. What are the things that are offering you the false promise of safe passage? What are those idols of your heart, the things you're trusting to get you through life? Can you name those things, confess those things to God? Tell the truth to yourself this morning and in God's presence that those things cannot satisfy you. Take a minute to pray in light of the reality of your union with Christ. What does it mean to you that all that's true of Christ is true of you? What does that mean to you? Have you ever experienced that? Have you ever experienced the sweet relief of that? <clears throat> or do you struggle to believe that you're this loved? Take just a minute and pray that to the Lord. Father, on this first <clears throat> Sunday of Lent, as we're looking towards Easter, our prayer to you is to keep us. And often we make that prayer not even knowing what we need to be kept from and not knowing what we need to be kept for. But we simply cry out, keep us. And we look to Jesus knowing that when we are in him, we are kept perfectly. Thank you, Christ. In your name we pray.